0: Bienvenidos y bienvenidas a MCN Talks, este podcast donde hablamos largo y tendido sobre diferentes temas de trascendencia global. Yo soy Daniel Gómez, jefe de información de MCN y quiero recordarte que puedes encontrar todos nuestros podcasts en las plataformas digitales y en nuestro sitio web medicalcannabisnews.com. Además puedes seguirnos en Facebook como Medical Cannabis News y en Instagram como MCN Global. El día de hoy hablaremos sobre psicodélicos como agentes terapéuticos Según la definición del gran investigador Stanis Groff, Los psicodélicos son para el estudio de la mente Lo que los microscopios son para la biología Lo que el telescopio es para la astronomía Hoy nos gustaría compartir con ustedes sobre cómo los psicodélicos Cuando son usados de manera correcta Tienen el potencial para curar, inspirar Y tal vez hasta salvar vidas a partir de los años 60, los estudios psicodélicos florecieron en todo el mundo, en los campos de la psiquiatría, la psicología, la neurociencia y la psicoterapia. Esta gran exposición causó a la vez que muchos movimientos catalogados como contraculturales y otros que querían poner fin a la guerra de Vietnam, hicieran un uso tal vez no tan adecuado de estas poderosas sustancias. Esto causó que Estados Unidos prohibiera su investigación, lo cual tuvo un impacto negativo en su desarrollo. Después de décadas de oscuridad, la buena noticia es que esta medicina ancestral está de vuelta. Y según los investigadores, vino para quedarse. Para esta charla hemos invitado a tres expertos en el tema de Canadá y Costa Rica. Para el mejor entendimiento de nuestros invitados, pasaremos de hablar en español al idioma inglés. Te recordamos que puedes encontrar el video. On on YouTube and on our IG Greetings. Thanks for being
1: with us tonight, guys. Can you please introduce yourself and talk a little bit about your work? My name is Zach Walsh. I'm a professor of psychology at the University of British Columbia, uh, where I do research on cannabis and psychedelics. I've been involved in research on those topics for about 10 years. We've published uh, some uh, epidemiological studies looking at the relationship between psychedelics and partner violence we've done some work with patient reports of psychedelics and we're looking forward to working with the bc center on substance use uh, developing a trial of uh, psilocybin for stimulant and alcohol use thank you hello good evening my name
2: is leticia Dewar. I'm a psychotherapist and breathwork facilitator, born in Belgium, but uh, also Costa Rican. And um, I'm very interested in the topic of, of course, of healing and uh, plant medicine. And I'm very happy to be here. Thank you for
3: being here. Well, greetings, everyone. Uh, My name is Jose Manuel. Uh, I worked initially uh, in neuropsychopharmacological research with psilocybin and stress specifically. Well, that didn't really work out. After that, I've been working a little bit in archaeological research of the uh, use of psychotropic substances in pre-Columbian times, specifically for Costa Rica. And uh, I am a researcher with ACI, which is the Costa Rican Association for Drug Study Intervention. And uh, right now I'm working on the subject of uh, the possible role of psychedelics in human evolution, along with uh, Dr. Michael James Winkelmann. So that's basically
4: what I've been doing. Really happy to be here. And Emmanuel Javog, I'm working with uh, MCN, and I've been involved uh, with them for the last five years. Thank you guys for being here.
0: Please explain us a little bit what are psychedelics to start. Okay. Let me start. Yeah, sure. <laughs> okay
3: Well, uh, psychedelics are uh, very interesting substances because they are very. They have very low toxicity. They're actually one of the less toxic substances known to to human beings, and they do not uh, engender an uh, uh, compulsive seeking of of its consumption. Mm-hmm. But what's most interesting about them is is the way they change uh, the the functioning of consciousness, of cognition, of uh, emotions, of perception. And uh, they do so in a very peculiar way that it usually only happens when we're dreaming or when we're having like a religious experience. So it's a very uh, special kind of experience that has, uh, uh, I mean, what people... Like, these guys are finding out that they have a, a very big potential for,
1: for therapeutic purposes. What is the history of these substances? How, how long has it been around? Um, classic psychedelics. Uh drugs like LSD and psilocybin that work on serotonin receptors. Sometimes when people talk about psychedelics, they really focus on those classic psychedelics, but there's other uh, medicines and drugs that can be used called psychedelics. Uh, But the classic psychedelics have a long history, but also uh, an interesting recent history. So there's history of use going back thousands of years for for psilocybin mushrooms. Um, And LSD, although There's evidence that people were using ergot fungus that had similar effects, uh, also similar uh, compounds in, um, oh, what are they called? The seeds. The Aztec seeds. What what am I thinking of? Barley. No, not barley. The the, uh, seeds with LSD. Oh, seeds. The morning glory yes. seeds. They haven't know, that well. one. The morning glory yeah. seeds. So that there's long, long-term use, but there's also been new refinements. So they're, they're both ancient and new in a lot of ways. We know a lot about them, but in some ways, with the tools of modern science, we know relatively little. Although that's changing in the last few years, there's been a lot more formal study of classic psychedelics, and also renewed interest in related uh, drugs like MDMA and ketamine that aren't classically psychedelics, but share some of the same characteristics and some of the same uses. So why is it today important? Is this like new medicine in the world for certain diseases? I think so. I think you know it's been 50 years since we've had major new medications to treat some very prevalent psychiatric disorders. Things like depression, PTSD, there are drugs that that people can use that are effective for some people but the rates seem to keep increasing and the treatment doesn't work for a lot of people so it's imperative that we find new approaches to treat these highly prevalent diseases. And the idea that a drug, as Jose was saying, that is uh, has very low risk, risk, low risk of abuse, low toxicity, and it can be effective after perhaps a few uh, sessions, rather than current antidepressant drugs that people have to take potentially indefinitely and then have very negative side effects. So. Uh, The enthusiasm, I think, is is well-founded because these are big diseases and there's early signals that this could help at least some people and and with a disease that affects so many, even if it only works on 30% of people, 20% of people, Mm -hmm. that's going to be alleviating the suffering of millions. Mm -hmm. Sure.
0: And where's the science at at this point right now,
1: like what do we know from your guys' experiences? I think the best research now is on psilocybin. Uh, for a number of reasons. Uh, It's quite similar to LSD in a lot of ways, not quite as long-acting, and because of culture wars in the 60s, LSD is very stigmatized. So uh, I think people might be more comfortable with psilocybin, even though the effects are probably similar. And there's some really promising findings, particularly for depression uh, with psilocybin. Of course, depression is like the common cold of of mental health. It's Mm -hmm. so widespread, uh, and the existing treatments are not satisfying. Um, so I think there's some good early signals coming from some very reputable sources, Johns Hopkins, New York University. Uh, we're hoping to add to that through UBC, but um, yeah, the, the evidence is coming in and it's, it's surprisingly strong, even for those of us that are optimistic about it, everyone's still like, wow. Uh, so yeah, I think there's a lot of potential. I think in the next decade, and maybe that's even being conservative, we're going to see the use of these drugs in, in mainstream psychiatry or at least as an adjunct or an addition to mainstream psychiatry. I understand that
0: now you can, uh, for instance, in North America, Canada, you can go to certain places and
1: have like this therapy. How, how does it work? The only way to get the therapy now, uh, in a way that's totally legal, is through studies. So if you can register in one of the trials. Having said that, there's a long tradition of underground uh, use. And I think some of the underground use with increased interest in the last years is becoming somewhat more above ground. Uh, But unfortunately, there's still no legal, reliable access. Unless you're fortunate enough or connected enough to know the right people, um, most people can't can't access these medicines. So there's a lot of frustration around that because there's promise and and people don't want to wait.
4: Can you tell us a a little bit more about the John Hopkins in Baltimore? And their researchers because I think they were a very important step um, for opening other researchers after the papers they published in 2006. What sort of illnesses they were looking to work on based on the psilocybin they were using?
1: Um, well, I mean, their research is, uh, you know, a huge chunk of what's known comes from, in the recent years, from the team at Johns Hopkins led by Roland Griffith. Um, they had some early trials of mystical experience so they have some work with people who weren't suffering and showing how it can affect mindfulness and how it can affect quality of life and actually have lasting change in personality, which is a very difficult thing to to accomplish. Um, And some really promising work with depression, uh, end of life anxiety. Uh, So those are some of the early targets. Um, If we go to the old history, there's been some work with LSD and alcohol. It's now being revived, alcohol misuse. Uh, So I think there's also promise for addiction. I think increasingly in mental health, we're conceptualizing a lot of problems as one underlying pathology. Uh, pathology of emotional dysregulation, of hopelessness, meaninglessness. Um, and so it could be that it's a common feature to many disorders that is being addressed by psychedelics. Uh, there's, you talk about depression now, that I, I, I've seen
0: people that are using certain kind of Drugs currently available, and it seems to work for them. Like what? What could be a difference between psilocybin in this case and these like, pre- prescription drugs that are available
4: right now? The, the benefits.
2: Well, I believe that uh, the, the drugs that are prescribed, of course, needs to be taken long term and have. Uh, has there are some studies that show that there is some um, negative effect on health on the long term and on neurological functioning. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, uh, I think that the psilocybin and psychedelics uh, also provide a, a, a more integrated and holistic experience than the drugs that are taken, uh, you know, that are prescribed. So I think it's uh, a broader, and a, uh, it, you talked about consciousness, I think it gives more, more benefits than only the, the prescribed drugs, right, so I think it's uh, more integrated healing takes place
1: yeah i think people should be allowed to choose if they want to try those drugs if those are effective then then that should be a choice Um, but they should also have an opportunity to take these very ancient uh, treatments or treatments that are based on very ancient technologies that seem to be part of our i feel like they're part of our right as beings on the planet to take advantage of of this piece of the human puzzle and, and to be prevented from that and forced into what for some people is a is a worse option. Just doesn't seem fair. I don't. I don't know what what how that benefits anyone. I don't think they'll replace traditional antidepressants. Maybe they will, but they'll play a role for both.
2: And and I think that the, the fact is that they can coexist. Mm-hmm. But right now there is an imbalance because uh, it's all underground and it means that people are taking psychedelics in unprotected environments without a proper psychologist or psychotherapeutic um, uh, integration and and, and support. And this is, you know, we don't want any dangerous situation. So we would love, of course, that uh, our society opens up to giving people a safe way of experimenting, as they do now, prescribed drugs, as well as psychedelics, right?
4: I believe, uh, being all here in Costa Rica, We know that this is a place that do attract people from all over the world to come and receive some of these treatments, but in a non-controlled manner. Uh, There are many places and people who are offering ayahuasca ceremony, iboga ceremony, uh, various mushroom ceremonies, and some of the people who come to visit the places, who come here, come with uh, therapeutic purposes. Right now they're being handled by people who don't have any knowledge, therapeutic knowledge uh, nor guidelines. Do you think there are any risk for the people who come uh, and do the ceremonies, as they are called, in such a way?
1: Uh, I think people have, should have a right to the best possible care, and I, I think. The the role of a clinician, whether it's a doctor or a psychologist, is to walk beside the patient to help as they make their choices. And people are choosing, obviously, that they want to try these medicines. And the risks are not so great that they should be prevented from trying it. So I think it's been that way with medical cannabis and it's that way with psychedelics that the patients are leading the way, and then I feel that the job uh, of... Of health professionals is to find a way to help those people get the most benefits, the least risks from their use. And if people are doing it in a way that doesn't maximize benefits and that might increase the risks, uh, that is a failure of the health system. Mm-hmm. So, when, when that, I don't think that people, as soon as they're depressed, think, well, the first thing I'm going to do is go to Costa Rica and drink ayahuasca. Often, those are people who have not found success with traditional therapies and want to try something else. And it's unfortunate, it's sad, it's not right that they should have to uh, go so far out of their way. And, and hopefully, some they have a good experience. I'm sure some people do, but uh, it's unfortunate that they can't do it in, in a way that's more affordable and more accessible and, and just more yeah, more conducive to healing. Yes, do
0: you guys think there's like a, a time in your life where it could be risky? Let's say uh, you're. 14 years old, 13 years old, maybe you're dealing with depression or something like that, would that be risky? What are the risks of taking psychedelic drugs in, in early
3: time of your life? Well, I would think that using any drug before the brain has uh, finished this process of development implies certain risks. However, if you look anthropologically, for example, there are tribes that use the Datura the and they give it to children when they misbehave. And it's not like a punishment. <laughs> it's for them to gain a, a, a better perspective of the way their behavior affects the family and the way the behavior affects the tribe. So, I, I mean, I'm not advocating that we give psychedelics to children, but there is also research with uh, LSD and children with autism. So there's also story, a story of research with psychedelics and okay. young people yeah. in the West. Yes. Uh, But I think that maybe you need to be, have certain maturity in your psychological, I mean yourself needs to be sufficiently developed for you to be able to integrate the experience, to navigate it and and have something valuable to bring back for you or or for your community or for your family. So uh, definitely we need, uh, I mean, it's better if you are sufficiently psychologically prepared, if you're you're healthy, if you're healthy healthy psychologically, but, I mean, we also work with people that are really disturbed, so, uh, one would think that people that are psychologically disturbed would not be that, it wouldn't be that good to give them psychedelics, but we find that this is the case because it increases their connectedness with themselves, with their community, and so the way it works is, uh, it enhances certain. Parameters that are, that can become dampened when you're sick. You feel disconnected from the world. You feel disconnected from from yourself also. You don't know yourself. So, uh, I mean, I'm not sure what the answer to that is. That's what I have to to say about it. Maybe agree? Maybe they can elaborate a little bit.
1: Um, yeah, there, I mean, there are traditions. You know, ayahuasca traditionally used people uh, take it with their families. I mean, when we talk about taking it, young people taking it, does that mean taking it together with trusted elders, does not mean taking it in a hospital, does not mean taking it at a music festival, those are all different, different contexts. You know, we're so early and it's so sensitive of a topic now, we certainly are not going to start with children as the place where you want to want to do it, but we give children all kinds of terrible medicines when they're very sick. Yeah. Um, so we certainly give children more de- medicines that are more dangerous than psychedelics if we think that in the end it will benefit their health. Um, but it's certainly when we talk about taboos, children come up early when we talk about drugs. So I'm sure it'll be a while, but is there something inherently wrong if, if for a medical reason in, in using it? I don't know. Uh, we'd have to be, proceed very slowly and carefully.
2: Uh, what do you think, Dr. Walsh, is the most um, the obstacles that we encounter in our society and academic world? Uh, seeing all the results that the, the most prestigious universities in the U.S. have shown positive results on the use of psychedelics for different uh, uh, problems uh, that people face in mental health. What is the strong, strongest obstacles and resistance that we, are, we have right now to, to, you know, to make that big step towards public health?
1: Well, I think it became part of the culture wars in the 60s and it, it, they became demonized, um, wrongly and unfairly.
2: Do
1: you think that's still a risk today? I think it, it's, it's certainly waning. I think sometimes the, the sense of uh, that there's obstacles maybe is greater than the actual obstacles. Uh, mm-hmm. In fact, the FDA has given some speeded up approval to things like MDMA and, and psilocybin. And, and um, you know, the, it costs society so much, PTSD and, and treating depression and the loss of life and the loss of productivity um, I think that people are ready uh, I think you know with if people are ready to look objectively at the results see what are the real risks what are the potential benefits and move forward in a way that's slower than many people would like but it does seem to be moving forward now so um, the obstacles may be uh, in some ways our own timidity mm. It'd be interesting to know if this opening
4: openness now that we are finding uh, towards these anti drugs and auto drugs to be used in therapeutic purposes might uh, result from the cannabis fight uh, we, we started with somehow the most accepted drug by societies, the western societies at least, and slowly we showed the therapeutic aspect of, of the, the benefits of these drugs. Now in the United States it's more than 30 states where it's absolutely legal and Uh, used in uh, therapeutic purposes, many countries in Europe. It's opening in Asia, it's opening in Central America and South America. Do you think that the fact that now people are more open to to study other drugs, who are perceived to have stronger effect, is the result of this opening that
1: we did uh, with the medical cannabis? I think it created a real sense of possibility uh, that it could be done. I think it changed people's minds more broadly. It may have even reflected a change in society that we weren't as aware it was even there. Um, you know, having legalized cannabis in Canada, I think most people I talk to, the amazing thing is how it really is not such a big deal. It seems, and I think it'll be the same for this. I think, you know, there'll be there'll be psychedelic clinics. Um, people might drive by them and say, hey, look, well, there's a the psychedelic clinic or, <laughs> threaten their kids, I'm going to send you to the psychedelic clinic or, or whatever, but I think it'll just be part of the neighborhood and, and people who aren't interested in it won't fuss about it. Uh, maybe I'm just being Canadian, but <laughs> that's what I imagine. I think that it, it will be uh, front page news for a week and then uh, yeah. they'll be wrapping fish in the newspaper and people will be going to the psychedelic clinic. That's, that's interesting. Yeah. And like in this, these
0: people are already going and using this for more like a Therapeutic effects. What are the these effects that they're seeing now? Like more, you guys know any case like directly that you can you know, share with us?
2: Well, there has been amazing studies uh, published about, like uh, Dr. Walsh said, about people who are dying from cancer, which is something very common right now. I think we all have, you know, all of us know as person dying from cancer, is that um, it becomes so common. That you know, we these people need some uh, uh, acompañamiento, yeah, uh, support, support to go through such difficult thing as it's dying, mm-hmm. and psychedelics is an amazing tool to um, to talk about death and to revise and connect with your own relationship with death and to have a spiritual uh, awakening eventually. Mm-hmm. So I think that's all. That's the beauty of it, and I think. You know, it's, it's all about beauty actually. It's all about the beauty of, of the experiences that can be uh, provided to people who are really suffering. Mm-hmm. I think we forget that this is not a recreational thing, this is not a party thing. This is about people who are suffering and that it can one of us can be in that situation and I think people who are suffering deserve the best treatment. Mm-hmm. I right?
1: yeah.
4: And I think you were saying something very interesting, Leticia. Is and about the perception of uh, the psychedelics. And many people who are not aware, really, or don't know so much about drugs tend to think that the psychedelics are addictive, for instance. But the, the, the papers that are being published, the studies that are being made, are actually showing the opposite. It could actually help to go to fight against addiction. Mm-hmm. And talking of a big subject now, the opioid addiction that is going on in the United States right now, which is a disaster, one of the way to actually work uh, against it, to cure it, could be actually these drugs that the, some people perceive as being an enemy. Uh, mm-hmm.
1: uh, I don't know if you could, uh, if you know a
4: little bit more about
1: that. Or yeah, they were lumped in with drugs that, that are more habit forming. But but really, people don't feel a compulsion. They may have a desire to use, to have the experience again, but you don't see people having using these drugs compulsively. Mm-hmm. One of the best ways to see if you know if if you give. A, a an animal, cocaine or alcohol, it'll quickly learn to press the lever to get more. Uh, but if you give a kid they'll press the lever to avoid a psychedelic. Uh, it's not—it's not reinforcing. It doesn't work on those dopamine pathways that are typically associated with addiction. Um, I mean, I think there could, there certainly will be some people who, who perhaps use more than they should, or, or the people who do. But it—it's not something that is overwhelming the healthcare system with. Psilocybin misusers. And that's despite the fact that they're, that they're quite easy to propagate on your own, you can find them, they're not expensive. People still don't really seek them out compulsively. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, try to find one of your friends who has a real problem with, with mushrooms.
4: Hey, maybe a question more for Jose, who studied the anthropological part of the. Of those psychedelics, I mean, they have been part of many cultures, and there uh, many studies have been done. And uh, today, uh, people are finding out uh, the relevance of uh, uh, the the status of uh, these plants within those cultures. How do you think uh, we could connect that to the the research that are being done today on how it could be it could have a cultural integration? Because I think one of the specifics of, of, of these cultures is it was part of uh, the entire family context, the entire tribe, and they, were, they had uh, absolutely no prerogatives against them. And we are coming, us, in a culture that had a lot of prejudices, and we have to somehow find a bridge. Do, do, do you think this is happening through research? On... Well, I think, yeah, that as
3: the more we know about how indigenous cultures used and integrated these substances, I think it will become clear how we can do it. Of course, we're in a very different context. We are uh, trans-egalitarian societies. Much of psychedelics in, in traditional societies is in societies that do not have classes, societies in which leadership is uh, charismatic, it's not something, I mean, you don't have this, the, the chief does not inherit his, his uh, place in society. is because you have the capacity to cure, or you have the capacity for divination or you can help people decide when you can go and hunt so there are very specific uh, uses for psychedelics in these societies but the theme that is always there is that it's something that is ritualized so ritual is something that is basic for the process of uh, preparing for the experience for uh, having the experience and eventually for integrating it and having it be something that is Nutritious or is beneficial for the individual, for the group. And I think there is this uh, analogy going on in psychotherapy, Uh, not necessarily is ritual that is done, but there is a very, there are guidelines that are followed, there is some behavioral uh, like patterns that facilitate a a safe space which you can explore. Uh, the inner workings of your mind, or you can explore, explore your spirit, You can, however you can sexualize it, but it is clear that the effect has not to do only with the neuropharmacology of the substance, that you have to carefully orchestrate the context, and your intention has to be the right intention for you to be able to, to really benefit from these substances. Mm-hmm. So I think maybe they can elaborate a little bit on that regarding the, the
4: specific psychedelic uh, therapy.
1: Uh, exactly. Yeah, I mean, I, it, it's 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 such an important piece. If you look at so many different uh, schools of psychotherapy, when they think of how are we best going to do psychedelic psychotherapy, people tend to reflect their own ideas. So in the, in the 60s, it was very psychodynamic. And then, you know, now I think people are looking at mindfulness or even non-directed types of therapies. But the one thing that is consistent is that there has to be an attention to the set and setting. That there have, this has to be something that's significant, that people need to be cared for, that there needs to be some preparation and there needs to be uh, attention afterwards. There needs to be preparation so that people uh, enter it into it in an informed and as comfortable way as possible. And there has to be integration because people are vulnerable afterwards. It's a, it can be a profound event. So, Uh, to get the most from it we need that it has to be surrounded it's psychedelic assisted psychotherapy and i think we have to have uh, training for people who are going to do that Um, i think it can be the same or largely overlap with general training as a therapist i don't think that uh, it's a completely different job from being a regular therapist i think it's a new tool uh, for therapists i think it'll require some additional training on how to best get people in and get people out so that you have uh, the best possible effects, um, fortunately it's, it's still pretty safe uh, so uh, the risks are there but they're not they're not as pronounced as some other drugs.
2: Yeah, I think that um, the integration and, and the support after the psychedelic experience can be given professionally uh, and this is part of I think the healing process for anyone who wants to do the work that needs to be done when we're you know, having some issues or just our own growth. But at the same time, I, I kind of always struggle with how can we give support as a community? Not only one professional gives that support on a weekly basis, let's say, how can we as a community come together and provide this best support uh, to people uh, and recreate at some point a certain uh, community which uh, we had in ancient times uh, it was a full village that would support the people and i think we need to be creative in this modern society also through technology how we can support people the best way and not uh, because uh, you know, and I think psychedelics—one of the beautiful things about it—is it connects. Yeah, it, it, like you said, you know, it brings you out of isolation. So there is a strong need of human connection afterwards. Yeah. And I think it needs to be addressed, and it needs to happen really for people. They can't go back to their isolation, uh, because as you said, it's a strong experience, and you you want to share this with people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, it, it, it's easier to share it with people—people, sorry—that have been through similar experiences. Mm-hmm. I think that's also why these communities have to be created to give support, right?
1: I think group therapy models will be very promising for people. Yeah. And there's actually been some starting to do some studies with group work in psychedelics. As we start, we always want to do it as conservatively as possible. So it's one-on-one, often two therapists with one patient. Uh, but it might be the case that, uh, that it, it ultimately it's group, group integration or group preparation, or maybe people have an option of one or the other. Um, you know, I think surgeries give us some kind of a model for how we might think about it. Uh, you don't just go and have a surgery. You're gonna see the doctor first, and you meet the nurses, and you meet the whole team. And you think about options, there's a careful assessment. Uh, maybe, and then you, you stay under supervision for a couple days, maybe, and, or, or at least overnight, usually. You go back, the first week, you go back a couple times, they, people check on you. If you're doing well, less. If you're not doing so well, there's more attention. But uh, I think that model, we can learn from that and yes. adapt that.
2: And, and the, the also a major um, issue is how can we provide tools for people, uh, self-care tools? Because, you know, I personally believe that we are in our inner healer, we are our, our inner guide. And that's also uh, what psychedelics teaches us and that uh, how can we create tools so people are not dependent neither on seeing a therapist on the long term how can they uh, develop t- self-care tools that can really bring them on, uh, on growth and, and healing, right?
3: Absolutely. I think that, well, uh, regarding that, uh, we can learn from the ancient cultures, right? The main tools are music and art mm-hmm. and metaphor and... Uh, Meditation. Right, so we... Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like we need to regain the whole kit, right? And I think what Leticia was saying about communities is fundamental because the psychedelic experience that people have in traditional cultures is not their own experience, it's not a subjective experience. In Western cultures, we tend to think that it's it's my experience, it's my psychedelic experience or it's my awakening or my... uh, whatever way you can conceptualize it, but... uh, we need to find ways to share the symbols and the archetypes that allow us to integrate the the, the lessons that we gain from these experiences on a societal level, not only on an individual level.
2: It's beautiful how in holotropic breathwork, people share their, make their mandalas and share their mandalas, and there is that whole sharing aspect. I think we can, you know, yeah. learn a lot from breath work around. And, and it's not experience. something very
3: rational. Or it has to do with expressing something that cannot be put into words because mm-hmm. the experience itself is ineffable. It cannot be put into words. So it, it it follows that probably the best way we can communicate, we can integrate, has to do with art, has to do with music, has to do with metaphor, has to do with storytelling, mm-hmm. dancing, all these kinds of stuff that that uh, uh, have to do with something that is more ancient, that is more. I don't like the word primitive. I mean, it's evolutionarily more ancient. There are ways in which we uh, deal with stress, and we, ways in which we connect with people that have nothing to do with words. Words didn't exist when all of these things were in place, right? Absolutely. Uh, excuse yeah, I, mean, me. I wanted to ask Gisian and Zach, do you guys think that it's necessary for a therapist uh, uh, that wants to do uh, psychedelic-assisted therapy that they have personal experience with psychedelics? Do you think that is fundamental? or
2: well I think from the literature, uh, it, it, the literature some, some researchers suggest yes, uh, to have a certain commonality and a certain understanding. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, yes, I think there is a certain agreement of yes, but there are also <coughs> some researchers that say no, it's not necessary. Mm-hmm. So, um, what do you think, Dr. Walsh?
1: I think if you are to look around now, it, it might be a moot point because I think most people that are doing it have had that experience yeah. and that's what's brought them to it. Sure. Um, I mean, uh, maybe not. Uh, I, I, there's a part of my gut that says, yeah, people should have that experience that they're going to do it, but, but why? Perhaps, bed, and, we're yeah, we're perhaps if the technologies are developed um, on how to do it, then, then why should you have to? But. Um, you know, there's I guess do we find about out that, can right? There's, there's research, it. like a It could be an empirical question, right? Okay. Yes. Take yes. therapists, yes. 10 that have done it, and 10 that And then how much do they have to have done it? Yeah. Is it, did you have to do it once and just... Okay, I've got to get there's, my license, sir. Or, or there's so be many variables. Yeah. Uh,
2: the, the only official training in the US, the, the California Institute of Integrative Studies, do, do, do not require any therapist to go through psychedelics to be uh, a psychotherapist, right? Mm, so interesting. I think it's it, officially it's not necessary. Mm. Now I think it's more an, a personal point of view we can all have about that, and right?
3: With MAPS, this, this projects that they have with MDMA, they do require for the therapist to Have experience with NDMA, right? They, they go through the experience themselves with, or, or am I wrong? Well,
2: well, all the MAPS people have, uh, you know, have experience with psychedelics, but I don't uh, think they really make it an official requirement. Okay, nice. No.
4: Okay. And Thank if you. you. If we were to follow on that track, if we were to go back a little bit to, I think, 1946 when uh, Hoffman uh, discovered the, the LSD. Uh, they are his own stories and records, and he wrote how all these doctors would get together, mm-hmm. these very proper people, mm-hmm. uh, with their ties and everything, and they were all experimenting the, the, the product before uh, going to, to treat their the patients. So, it, 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 I believe due to the specifics of the effect uh, that those uh, uh, psychedelics have, it, it seems that to be, uh, if it's not a legal requirement, it, uh, it, it, it should be an experience. That people have to understand world. what their patients mm-hmm. are, are going through.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, uh, it, there is this bio assay tradition in, in chemists, and, and uh, the first pharmacologists they were using the drugs. I mean, if you're going to be using them on other people, well, maybe the first person that should try them is yourself, right? So mm-hmm. maybe it's. Just,
1: that's an interesting uh, question. It's a, maybe <laughs> there should be an opportunity. And if it's something where they're only going to say, you have to have PTSD in order to get MDMA, um, then there may not be an opportunity for therapists to do it, but maybe there should be an exemption where therapists can. Yes. I think it might be a moot point. Um, yeah. I, 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 I think, I think if we sure. find the therapists, the psychedelic psychotherapists that are allowed and encouraged to, to try the medicines, but have decided not to, um, I suppose they can form their own society. Mm-hmm. And they'll probably be a pretty small. So. Yeah.
4: Guys, <laughs> <laughs> think it like now. But I wouldn't forbid them. So yeah. Th- th- this okay. would be a big difference with uh, the use of those psychedelics in history because all the, the leaders in cultures were, us- were users themselves. And they were providers practitioners and I yeah, so I think you
2: said like you, you won't you won't probably be uh, attracted to do psychotherapy assisted with psychedelics if you haven't done the own experiences. It kind of goes together, mm-hmm. right?
4: And it's a big commitment uh, for, for this is like six hours mm-hmm. being next to a patient and uh, trying to accompany him through his experience. Mm-hmm. So I don't know how many would be motivated if they don't really know what's going on during, their, during that time. Is, uh, I wanted to know how how is science uh, approaching
0: to the subject of the dosing, like all this we're talking about LSDs, psilocybin, and all that. Like, is there a specific strain of of mushrooms, psilocybin, or what do we know
1: about that? Mushrooms vary pretty widely in uh, how much psilocybin they contain uh, across species of mushrooms and across given examples of within a species Uh, so most of the research is using standardized uh, synthetic psilocybin Um, and I would say that uh, the doses that are effective are are what would be considered I I would say large doses um, from people who have perhaps experienced on their own or tried recreationally The, uh, the, the therapeutic doses are generally large Large doses. Large doses. Uh, there's some there's some research showing that it's the intensity of the mystical experience uh, that determines the outcome, and uh, typically that, that's more. Some sometimes you can get there with less, um, but it's more reliable, uh, more reliably evoked with higher doses. And so it's a very important point that uh, you're talking about
4: for uh, people who would like to work with the psilocybin. How does it work today? You, you were saying it's coming from one specific species more than another, and that's the one that is being used in the several studies uh, around the university? It, it's being synthesized,
1: it's yeah, synthesized. chemically, so it's, okay. it's not derived, it's not extracted from okay. the mushroom, um, and that way the dose can be regulated. Um, you know, the way it was with cannabis for a long time, it was not very reliable how much THC, or what people knew, or what a strain was, and very quickly, when it became something where there was an incentive for that, um, the, the industry and the producers were able to get on board with it. And I imagine it'll be the same with psilocybin, yeah. there'll be synthetic psilocybin, but uh, if they're synthetic, then why would, would you know, I guess from a medical model, then synthetic might be, might be preferred, but um, if the regulations are reduced, perhaps people will have easier access to, to non-synthetic and be able to have some reliable dosage around that if we get some kind of legalization. If it follows a path like cannabis, where it goes from medical to, uh, to, uh, and to well, non-medical. The fact that it exists uh, such a variety
4: of uh, those psychedelic mushrooms in nature, do you think, uh, was it, for instance, that the, the fact of picking only one to become the, the cure mm. is a limitation uh, towards actually access to, to, to more possibilities in terms of therapeutic uh, aspect?
3: Well, I think there is something similar that's going on with the entourage effect with cannabis, right? That we have mm-hmm. a, a cocktail of, of compounds. We have biosisine or We have silicine, and there are many others. Actually, there is a paper that came out like two months ago that they found there is beta carbolines, which are present in the ayahuasca. So they are present in trace amounts, but they are present also there. So probably the the I mean nature is wise. Nature is wise, and that's why it produces this. Uh, the diversity of compounds that they work for the mushroom themselves, so they have a, a... I mean, they're secondary metabolized, but they have a function for the fungi. And probably we will have uh, different effects from just using psilocybin than from using the whole mushroom. However, I remember reading that Maria Sabina, this shaman that used mm-hmm. mushrooms, I, I, I think it was... Uh, yeah, Gordon Watson brought her... The, the, psilocybin, the synthesized psilocybin that Hoffman had done, and she said that it was the same, and that she could now uh, uh, do the rituals, the ceremonies, during the time when the mushrooms were not available. Yeah. So, I mean, her, her, I think her opinion is... Uh, yes, good. We to should respective. take it. Yeah, yeah, but, uh, I mean, chemically and neuropharmacologically, probably there are differences, but that's an empirical question, probably mm-hmm. the eventually will have to be
1: investigated. I've heard that some people thought she was being nice because he had brought her yeah <laughs> and she was like, "Yeah, it's yeah. great. It's just done. Thank you so much. Best. I'll use it all the time." Sure. <laughs>
0: <be> <laughs> how do people take this? Do they do teas or do they smoke it? Or how, how does it work? Or people do to know. The mushrooms the specifically, the all all In the, the studies. Some seven studies, you Exactly. Mean? And all the all the use is more like. Uh, psychotherapy assisted psychotherapy or these kind of rituals you know let's like, talk like a little bit about that I've seen in John Hopkins, they
3: e- even use like a cup mm. right they give the the person the, the psilocybin uh, capsule in a cup so it's a little bit it's ritualized yes. and the, the, the thing with with ritual is it helps set an intention and have like a
2: Structure, A structure, A structure. structure that's uh, structure gives safety. Gives to safety a... because you have
3: a like you know you don't know what you're gonna find but you at least have like a notion of, of of the of the of the way of the track that you're gonna follow. And of course, if you have someone that is experiencing those realms of consciousness, uh, then you're gonna be able to more effectively explore them. And that's the difference with psychotherapy and shamanism. I mean, the, I don't remember if this was McKenna that said this. The the uh, the shaman. No, this was Claude Lennie-Strauss, He said that the shaman talks and the psychotherapist listens. So there's a fundamental difference. The shaman talks and he makes sounds and he he enacts the the, the, the struggle that he's, that he's having with the spirits to bring back the soul or something like that. But with the with the for for example, the Johns Hopkins they give the psilocybin and the person is lying there and they have they listen to music and there's this very carefully uh, curated music that. Uh, this is Mendel Kailing. I think is the researcher that's doing that, and he's been working on the perfect yeah. playlist for psilocybin sessions. So I guess that works too. As Letícia said, there is like an inner guide. There is like a mm-hmm. and a thought, like this orienting principle, allotropic, or, or that is directed to our wholeness. And the the mushrooms or LSD, they they awaken this like this orienting principle. So. Uh, Maybe it's not necessary that you have a shaman doing all the performance and everything because clearly this kind of therapy works also even though you don't have someone directly controlling the experience that you
1: have. People are directed to go inwards. There's really, it's a non-directive therapy generally. There can be the preparation and the integration but during the psychedelic experience I think that it's safe to say the therapist tries to be supportive your hand on the shoulder, or check in once or twice. Are you okay? But if if the participants are are oriented outwards, uh, they usually it's recommended that they you know go back in, relax, everything okay. Mm-hmm. But it's not a talk therapy. It's it's very very inner like you're saying, the inner healer. What about
0: other? You were talking later uh, earlier about ketamine, and MDMA. Whether we know
1: about that. It took a lot of psilocybin, let's talk a little bit on that those subjects. Different mechanisms than psilocybin, DMT, LSD, the classic psychedelics, but they seem to be following a similar path and um, uh, similar, I guess they're sort of traveling together right now. One of the things with ketamine is it's legal. Um, it's been just recently approved as a nasal spray by Johnson Johnson for depression, for suicide. Uh, that administration is very uh, expensive, and it's a little bit ironic uh, because it can be used much more cheaply uh, as, a, as a long-standing, unpatented medicine. But They, they were able to, to patent a certain, uh, certain mode of administration and a certain version of the molecule uh, um, that's the one that's been approved. That doesn't stop uh, physicians from using old-style ketamine, which has the same effect, more or less, off-label. Um, but how that works from a regulatory framework is, is really up in the air right now. In the US, there are many clinics that offer ketamine infusion, some of them take a psychedelic approach. I think that that's growing in popularity. Others I think see the psychedelic-like effects as being, uh, being a nuisance. Um, so I think some people would certainly see it as a psychedelic and as something that works in much the same way as the classic psychedelics, it's shorter acting and much, much more available. Um, In Canada, uh, there's a lot of regulation around it. It requires intravenous use for depression, um, and even that's off-label. We're trying to make it possible to do it in a more conducive environment where it can be uh, intramuscularly administered so that people just get one shot rather than being hooked up to an IV because that can be quite distracting uh, from the psychedelic experience. But if it can be given in an oral lozenge or in uh, intramuscularly, then people can have uh, much the same thing the sleep mask and direction to go inside and and uh, emotionally evocative music. that's not overly you know no lyrics usually but uh, uh, so it, it could be an slightly simpler to administer psychedelic mm-hmm. um, the early results for depression are quite quite astounding but uh we still have more, we still have more to learn. And how about MDMA? But yeah, of one,
4: one of the psychedelics who's being used widely in a recreative way is MDMA. Oh. And here in Costa Rica, there are many music festivals and, and it's mm-hmm. uh, definitely uh, some drugs that people are, are been using. But there are some very, uh, and, Positive uh, aspect uh, therapeutically
1: with, with MDMA. Would any of you could uh, tell us a little bit more about that? There's been great results so far with MDMA and PTSD. And there's a lot, a lot of uh, activity in that research area. I think we can expect to see MDMA approved as a as a treatment for PTSD in the not so distant future. Um, the effects for people who are resistant to other forms of treatment. So there are treatments for PTSD. There's behavioral treatments, some people uh, have good results with antidepressants, but a lot of people don't. Uh, and uh, some of those people, uh, a large portion of those people are showing good results from a few MDMA sessions. So it's certainly promising and, and that's being recognized by different uh, governing bodies in the US and Canada and Europe and I think we're gonna see MDMA as a, as a treatment. It's not a psychedelic in the classic sense like LSD and, uh, and psilocybin. And like Ketamine, it has probably a greater potential for misuse, for compulsive use. Um, it, can, it can have, um, yeah, I think it has greater potential for, for misuse, but again, it's a relatively safe drug. Ketamine also is widely used as an anesthetic. It's used for children in, in even higher doses than the therapeutic dose. But like MDMA, it, it has a greater potential for um, perhaps compulsive use or people using it recreationally than the classic psychedelics. So um, that, that, I guess that's a concern for some people. There's no evidence of someone uh, encountering MDMA in a trial or in a therapeutic uh, setting and then going on to have a problematic MDMA use. But I believe there are people who use MDMA and would like to use less and have some difficulty doing that so in that way you don't see that as much with psilocybin where people are like i'm giving up psilocybin and then the next weekend they're using psilocybin again but you can see that with mdma you can certainly see it with ketamine and with long prolonged use of ketamine uh, there can be some pretty severe health consequences for the bladder Uh, so in those ways there's some more concern but still compared to many mainstream medicines they're still quite safe and, and those negative uh, experiences are limited and, and haven't really shown up amongst therapeutic users. What would you guys
0: say, like, to somebody that that's scared about these drugs now? Like, there's people that have been raised with this kind of mentality. What would you say to these people that you know
4: that are might be interested in? Them?
2: Well, I think fear is one of the, the emotions that blocks most people, and. <laughs> <laughs> An important growth in our life, so I think that it's about education. Uh, we we need to educate ourselves, and I think that uh, we're we're talking right now under scientific rigorosity and and validity. And I think we we you know it's important that you know we're not gonna go back to to this this world where it's all like you know. Um, Talking from from an emotional part, I think it, it needs to be addressed. That it's an educational, scientific uh, approach that we're, we're today. That's why it's such a revolution. Is because finally we have uh, serious studies going on, mm-hmm. and that I think that the education is is against fear, right? I
1: yeah, uh, I mean I think it's about a choice. People who are reluctant or who are afraid. Um, should examine the risks and benefits and make their own decisions. For many people, it, it, the I, the concept of having that kind of an intense uh, experience is is unappealing, and those might be people who who would rather take an antidepressant on a regular basis. They don't maybe don't want to have that kind of experience, and and they should. Uh, I I would hope that they would have effective options that are suitable for them. But uh, I think it should just be an option for people who, who maybe aren't afraid, and and for those who are. If they're afraid but curious, um, they should find out more and if they're afraid and not curious, they go about their business.
2: Mm-hmm. And I have to say that uh, as, a, uh, as a personal experience and, and as a professional breathwork, mm-hmm. breathwork can uh, be a very healthy and, and safe mm-hmm. uh, technique that can also help people uh, having similar uh, benefits mm-hmm. uh, from psychedelics because you can enter uh, non-ordinary states of consciousness, have mystical experiences, through breathwork. So, like Dr. Walsh says, I think there are many options. And I think, you know, uh, you know I think people have to choose the option that feels right to them. That's also your inner guidance.
1: <laughs> mm-hmm. And it's such a personal experience that, you know, you wouldn't want a situation where someone uh, says, okay, you have this condition. You have to have the psychedelic experience, or you're a you're a non-compliant patient, and I won't see you anymore. So, I think maybe more than some other medicines, this is something where um, it could be something that people seek out, or um, rather than something that is too vigorously recommended. If if people don't like it, I think that it'll that that the people who want it will find it once it's available.
3: Yeah, and I think it's important what they're saying that personal choice is, is always important because for example during the 60s and 70s there were people that had this idea that we had to put LSD in the water <coughs> or something like that so that everyone can treat and everyone will be lighter or something like that and the problem with that is that not everyone is has the tools or the, the maturity to to be able to to gain insight and, and to be able to feel healthier after having these experiences so Not not everyone has to have this kind of experiences, but it should be the case that those people who need it and want to have it should have the choice to do it, right? I think we can all agree with with that, right? Yeah, we don't want
1: to be messianic about it. It doesn't have to save the world. Maybe it will. That would be terrific. (laughs) Uh, But if not, maybe if we just have another option for treatment of people who are suffering and, and. if there's people who can quit smoking that couldn't quit smoking before, people who are not depressed, or mm-hmm. people who are dying that can go more peacefully, and, and um, all of that stuff, that's enough. Sure. Well, guys, thank you so much for being with us tonight,
0: sharing your knowledge, and until next time at MCN Talks. Thank, thank, you. You. thank for, you. for you. Nice. Thank you. for coming. <laughs> that's